This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. You're listening to the Oanda Market Insights Podcast. Each week we review and preview all the big business and market news with an Oanda Senior Market Analyst. And this week it is Craig Earlham from London. How are you doing? Really, really good, mate. How are you? Very good. I'm delighted it's cooled down because it's been a hell of a week. I'm sorry to talk about the weather. It's very British of me, I know, but uh, it's been... I, I think I've had about two hours sleep a night. Well, I think the British part of it is the fact that you're whinging about the good weather. That's, that's <laughs> the British part. Well, there's plenty to whinge about these days, isn't there, <laughs> apart from the weather. And uh, let's start with Brexit. But more importantly, the first few days of Prime Minister Boris Johnson's premiership. He's cast his very Brexity cabinet... He's gone on the front foot. He destroyed Jeremy Corbyn at the dispatch box in his first speech on Thursday. And uh, markets probably very worried about how near we are to a no-deal Brexit. They're definitely going for that, aren't they? It's very, very bullish. It's very bullish, but the markets have been pricing in Johnson for the last two months. So when he actually got announced in the first few days, it's been pretty tame. In fact, I think the pound's actually made a bit of a bounce uh, moment, maybe some profit-taking from traders who had been betting on uh, the... Boris victory, um, all of a sudden realising that the next month could actually be a bit slow. We are heading into summer recess after all, so Parliament won't be sitting. Um, so very little may actually really, uh, of substance at least, will happen. There's probably going to be a lot of rhetoric, etc. But that is Boris at his finest. He is a talker. He does captivate audiences. He may not say much of substance when he does, but he does keep you interested and he does keep you listening. He had a plan. I think that's the clear thing here. He does very much have a plan. He had his cabinet already made up. They contain all the Brexiteers that you could possibly expect to see. He's laid out his terms for Europe, uh, which as you say, are very bullish. They have no interest in a time-limited backstop. Now, I think we'll be talking about that in a couple of months as maybe uh, not being entirely truthful. If you go into a negotiation, you set yeah. out your stores with you, what you want. And you then have to give some wriggle room, expect. don't you, for the other side. Exactly. If you go into this saying, we'll take a time-limited backstop, what you're going to be constantly fighting for is actually just the backstop. Um, so if you say we've got no interest in a time limited backstop and you end up with it, then you can still claim it as a victory, even if you said initially that it's not what you were after. In terms of how the market's going to respond over the next couple of months, it's going to be very interesting because he's made it very clear that one way or another, we are going to leave on the 31st of October. I'm still sceptical because that still requires either Parliament voting for a deal which the EU straight away has suggested is going to be very difficult, or B, Parliament backing no deal. Uh, which is not going to happen, or see Boris going around Parliament uh, and getting no deal via the back door, uh, which again is going to be very difficult, but I'm sure he's going to be looking at many ways in which he can do that. What about a general election, though, before October the 31st? That is possible, isn't it? I'd say impossible now, actually, because we are now into summer recess. Could he not come back on September the 3rd, I think it is, isn't it? announce that he's going to call an election and within six weeks have that election. There's a lot of talk in the newspapers about how the fact that he's going to have to call an election because there's going to be one anyway and it's better that he's in control. I say impossible. What I really mean is improbable because the time that it would take to actually have the election, go to the polls, have the weeks in between... When you see a new government, we're going to be weeks away from Brexit unless that's his plan to get us no deal by the 31st October is actually to call an election at the start of October so that Parliament effectively collapses and there is no one sitting in Parliament who can actually stop no deal. I think it's unlikely. Boris, if he actually is serious about winning an election, 
He wants to hold an election having been the Prime Minister that delivered Brexit. That's the only way you destroy the Brexit party. It's the only way that you effectively destroy the Lib Dems because their sole policy which they're known for is blocking Brexit. He takes on Jeremy Corbyn and he takes him on in the strongest possible position among the Tory voters. In some respects it would work out better for Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party if that election came after Brexit because that particular problem for them are they a Remainer party or a Brexiteer party, would have gone away and they just fight it on the other issues. But they'll still be known for being uh, on the fence, um, right. I think. Okay. And, 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 Bor- and Boris and his team will be known as the people who delivered. And they he will expect the credit for that. But you, it's all about timing then, isn't it? Because you would imagine that he'll want to hold an election as soon after Brexit as possible. There is likely to be negative economic consequences to begin with. And he doesn't want to be going into 2022 um, with a bad economy. So ultimately, the best time to do it, you would think, may actually be straight after securing Brexit because you You've got the the lag that it takes for the economy to get hit, but you are you have the Brexit deal. Sajid Javid, he's the new Chancellor. He's obviously going to call an early autumn budget. How did the city and international markets see Sajid Javid as Chancellor of the Exchequer? Was that uh, greeted with positivity? I'd say it wasn't really greeted. It was expected, and I don't think it really makes a huge difference. Ultimately, Boris Johnson put someone in place who was going to implement what he told him to implement. It's not as if people think, especially in the early days, that Javid is going to make his mark on the budget in any considerable way. There's promises which Boris has made, which he's going to be expected to follow through on. It's going to be very difficult because they were very bold promises. But Javid's job is effectively going to be trying to find a way to accommodate what Boris Johnson has promised to do. Um, So therefore, it doesn't really make too much of a difference who he is. Of course, it'd be different if that was Philip Hammond, who you would expect pushback from, but you're not going to get that. Although he is a man with business minister experience in the past, isn't it? So it's not like he's coming in blind. No, and it's not like he's going to be incapable of doing his job. The interesting thing is we're likely to have an early budget. It's been reported this morning. Uh, I saw a Reuters article suggesting that there's been leaks that we're going to see an early budget, um, a no de- uh, basically a, pre- a no-deal preparation budget, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then we'll start to see how they, they are going to afford it. Is it going to be running a higher deficit, which isn't the end of the world in, in times of desperation? Are there going to be cuts elsewhere in order to try and pay for some of these promises? And in which case, where are these cuts going to come? Because everything's been cut pretty fine over the last decade. You wonder how you can afford to do a lot of these things unless you are going to be raising the deficit at the time. And at which point, you're basically taking yourself away and your government away from Tory policies over the last decade, constantly telling people that we need to be running a surplus and we need to be reducing our debt. It's going to be an absolutely frantic autumn. Possible election, early budget and the actual exiting from the EU as well, we think. All in one six-week period. Amazing. It is. And then people are then wondering, well, what's the Bank of England going to do in, in all of this? Are they just going to stay quiet um, or are they actually going to be having to cut, in, cut rates, do more QE? We've got to remember, we're still in crisis era um, rates. We're at 0.75% interest rates. We're st- QE is still ongoing. What else is it that the Bank of England can do if we do have no deal Brexit and the Bank of England's expected to step in? Yeah, they could probably cut 25 basis points, maybe 50, maybe even 75. They've been reluctant to go to zero in the past. Is that going to make a considerable difference unless you're running a tracker mortgage and you can well, uh, have a few extra quid in your pocket? Well, that would be rather nice for me. <laughs> yeah. I won't be paying anything for my mortgage. <laughs> That's what I mean. It's like you wonder how exactly is it that you actually do that. So the Bank of England next Thursday, I think, is going to be really interesting for that. Because we now have a Prime Minister, I'm sure Carney is going to be heavily questioned on what that means for the Bank of England going forward. Forward. It is August, which means that it's the inflation report hearing. 
So therefore, we have the new inflation report with new economic forecasts. We have the press conference afterwards where he's going to be heavily questioned. So another big event on Thursday. Meanwhile, markets not best pleased with the ECB's decision not to cut interest rates, although they have hinted it could happen sooner rather than later, as there is definitely a slowdown in the Eurozone economy. So I think markets were heavily expecting the ECB to cut interest rates in September. But the closer we got to the actual decision this week, uh, the uh, the pri- the probability of uh, a rate cut at this meeting started to rise. And actually going into the meeting, it was around 50-50 from markets' perspective. And the reason for that was we had some PMI data earlier in the week. There's no other way to describe it. It was horrendous. For Eurozone PMI, manufacturing PMI fell to a six and a half year low. German PMI um, fell to the lowest level since the global financial crisis. Heavily in contraction territory. This is not obviously just a Euro area problem. Uh, this is a global problem. We're seeing similar in China, uh, etc. So clearly there is knock on effects everywhere. This is a global trade issue. This is um, a global slowdown issue. And this is effectively evidence of it. And once that happened, we start to see the ECB rate cut being more priced in. The problem the ECB has is we're talking about a 0.1% rate cut. So when we were talking about the, England, about the Bank of England, what kind of a difference can 0.25, 0.5 difference make? Well, the ECB is or the refinancing rate zero. The deposit rate is minus 0.4%. There's only so much they can do. So a 0.1% rate cut is what was being priced in. Now, we got the statement which was released alongside the decision, which was obviously for no change. And the statement got people very excited because it talked about persistent low inflation. They're not expecting it to change. And they also included uh, details of uh, what they're looking at in order to uh, try and drive some stimulus in the area. And one of the things was more QE and how it can actually be done. We remember during the last QE program that the difficulty was that they were approaching the upper levels of how much debt they could purchase from certain countries uh, and the difficulty to do with the capital key, which is uh, effectively what proportion of each country's uh, debt they need to buy as part of each purchase. And... They're clearly looking at ways to try and get around that apart from another QE program. The problem is that that takes time, but that didn't matter because markets were still expecting a rate cut. And then during the actual press conference itself, when the markets had reacted positively to that initial statement, Mario Draghi stated that they hadn't even discussed a rate cut in that meeting. And that really shocked markets because that made market people start to think, well, hold on, if you haven't even discussed it, then are we going to see it in September? Have you not discussed it, but you will next time? Or have you not discussed it because it's not on the table? And that shook investors up and we saw the euro rebound on the back of that we saw uh, markets uh, rebound on a on a whole and all of a sudden there was this unease in the markets this uh, and we've got to remember Mario Draghi is usually so dovish he's the one who normally provides hope and instead this time he's caused confusion and uncertainty and and it's that old saying markets hate uncertainty we're still pricing in uh, markets are still pricing in around a 90% chance of a rate cut so they haven't been completely deterred but they're no longer convinced as they were. And I think that's the bad thing which really came away from that. Surely with Brexit on the horizon, they've got to be very, very careful that they don't drift the Eurozone economy into a recession. And uh, this is very dangerous times, isn't it, really? And they've already said that there's a chance of resuming QE. I'm perplexed as to why they're being the way they are when they know that Brexit is um, on its way. Well, it's, it's just a difficult time and it's a difficult time for everyone. We've got to remember the UK is slowing down, the US is slowing down a little bit, obviously nowhere near as much. China's slowing down. Everyone's facing difficulties right now. It's why the global economy is so uncertain and why people are genuinely worried about uh, recessions and things like that because each area, each region is experiencing these difficulties but the euro area is certainly not immune to it and actually the core of the european the the eurozone being germany and others are probably feeling it as much if not more than others do you think the difficulties might actually make them a, a little bit more of a compromise when it comes to brexit negotiations 
no, personally. The simple reason being that ultimately for them, the EU project is uh, the it's be all forever. and all. Yes. Um, and while slowdowns are temporary, uh, this is Recessions. permanent. Recessions? and they are temporary as well. Mm. The euro is permanent, and therefore that has to be protected at all costs. Let's cross the pond, Craig, and uh, conversely, the ECB might not want to cut interest rates, but surely the US Fed is going to in the next uh, week or so. Yeah, so we've got the Fed meeting on Wednesday, and uh, a rate cut is almost is entirely priced in. Like, I think it would be just an enormous shock right now if the Fed didn't cut interest rates. The debate actually over the last number of weeks has not been about whether they will cut interest rates. It's been a buy about how much. Is it going to be 25 basis points, which was more heavily priced in, or 50 points, which has been increasingly priced in at times, getting as high as 40, 50% um, on the Fed probability uh, again. And... It seems that markets haven't really been wanting to listen to what the Fed actually has to say itself. They got very excited when John Williams last week claimed in, in a speech that preemptive policy uh, cuts are better than waiting for a crisis to unfold because they don't have the ammunition that they once had. So nipping this in the bud early is going to be far more effective. People saw that as a sign that they're going to come out with something aggressive. But then the New York Fed actually came out and clarified that in a statement which you very, very rarely see. This was followed on Friday by James Bullard, who uh, we mentioned in the podcast last week. He very much stood by the stance which he'd made previously, which was 25 basis points is enough, and I'm not in favour of a 50 basis point rate cut. That's significant because he is the most dovish member of the voting FOMC committee. And therefore, if he doesn't favour a 50 basis point rate cut, what is the chance that the majority of that committee will? It's surely slim to none, but markets continued to price in around 15 to 20% chance of a 50 basis point cut at this meeting, which is staggering. It's almost like the markets just can't accept what is happening right in front of them. On Thursday, during the ECB press conference, when Mario Draghi said that, people started to say, well, hold on, if ECB's disappointed us and they've said they've suggested they're not as keen to stimulate as much as we thought they were, then what if this means the Fed is going to do the same? It's almost as if the Draghi effect had more of an impact on people's considerations for the Fed than the Fed policymakers telling people that they didn't want to cut by 50 basis points did, which is bizarre. But then the, the markets can be quite bizarre at times. And I think on Wednesday, there's not going to be too much disappointment. There may be a little bit of disappointment at the fact that it's only 25, but not too much. I think pretty much now that's just where we're headed. It's almost to certain and it's fully priced into the markets. What's happening with the US-China trade talks at the moment? Yeah, so US-China uh, trade talks are set to begin again on Tuesday. Steve Mnuchin uh, and the other members of the trade team are heading over to uh, China on Monday. Um, and they will restart talks, taking off from where they left off, hopefully in a better position because of the discussions which happened between Trump and Xi at the, on the sidelines of the G7 uh, last month. The difficulty that we obviously have is that it's easy to do the first 90% because the first 90% is all the easy things. It's the last 10%, the nitty gritty, the stuff you've left till the end because you know it's going to be more difficult. There's no guarantee that this is going to be any better. So people, the optimism that people have had before when we've had these trade talks under, uh, getting underway, it hasn't really happened again on this occasion. People are very apprehensive, very cautious. I think it is still in both sides' favour to get a deal done uh, this year, at the latest early next because of elections and the economy, etc. But... Uh, I don't think, I think these are going to be very challenging uh, talks and I think there's going to be plenty more of them lying ahead. We had the US GDP data out today. That was just above, that was uh, 2%, I think. Decent enough. I think they, what they needed to avoid there was something terrible. We had the surge in, uh, in growth in the first quarter, which caught people off guard at 3.1%. That was driven by inventory building and uh, lower imports. That's clearly been offset a bit with this figure of only 2%. So we're really on trend now for around 2.5% growth in the US. That's envious as far as many countries in the world are concerned right now. And that's more than enough to keep them taking along. And it 
maybe even enough to just convince the Fed we can still be a little bit patient with this because there's clearly no catastrophe here. We're growing at 2.5%. Let's talk earnings season and I want to get uh, an idea of the mood so far because it's certainly underway. Next week we've got some big guns as well, Airbus, IAG and RBS and Apple as well. So we've had this week some fairly significant earnings from the likes of uh, Alphabet, haven't we? How did that go? Yeah, so, I mean, earnings season, i say, is going okay so far. People aren't getting too excited. I feel like we're in this environment right now where this bad news is good news environment, whereby if the mar- as long as the earnings aren't too bad, which makes us worry about the fact that we're actually heading for a recession now, and then, then, then that's fine. But we don't want it to be too good either because they don't, the markets don't want the Fed to be deterred from cutting interest rates. So they need to be just about bad enough to convince the Fed to cut interest rates without giving us anything to panic about. Uh, and I feel like the bar was lowered incredibly in the lead up to this earnings season. So companies are beating earnings expectations at a decent rate. Um, uh, and, and therefore, markets are saying, well, you know what? that's good enough. I can take that for now. We've lowered the bar. They've They've exceeded expectations a little bit. We're still on for a, 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 a earnings recession with negative growth for the second consecutive quarter, but that's fine. I think that's been pretty much priced in as far as the markets are concerned. We have had some uh, some decent numbers out this week. We've had some less good numbers as well. Um, and then, like you say, next week we've got some major names reporting. We've had a lot of tech companies report this week. Obviously, Apple, the next big one after that. And for them, for so many years we've been obsessed with iPhone sales, but now they've started reports, stopped reporting the actual numbers as part of the actual report itself. They say they want to focus on other aspects of the business for their growth. Because people are keeping their phones for longer, uh, for various reasons, that's no longer a focus for them. Basically, it's not something that they can brag about anymore. People haven't been too deterred. Their share price is still outperformed this year so far. It's still doing extremely well. I think it's up around 30% this year. So, People clearly aren't too concerned about that as long as they continue to show that they can grow other aspects of the business. We're talking the Apple Store, we're talking Apple Music, etc. Even the cloud to an extent. Um, there is areas of the business which they are, they are focused more on the services side of the business rather than handset sales. Um, and therefore... These are the details which we need to get now from Apple. Once upon a time, it was all about how many phones have you sold. Now, it's in, there's, a, there's a lot more being scrutinized. It's interesting how they've had to diversify because um, I think people have just discovered that, you know what, you don't need to upgrade your phone. It was almost like a fashion, wasn't it? Well, I think people have realized you don't need to upgrade your phone. And I think the people have also realized that there's not that big an upgrade now from handset to handset from the... The X to the XS was a very, very small difference in the, in, the, in the actual handset itself. You see Apple suddenly bragging about things that people aren't actually that interested in. Uh, and therefore, people decide, well, why would I want to upgrade and spend all this money if I'm not even going to notice the difference in the quality of the handset? I think it took a lot of people a lot of time to realise that they weren't getting a free phone. They thought an upgrade meant free phone. No, it meant they just had to pay a lot for their tariff. Yeah, they've always paying a tariff as yeah. well. So you're not just paying the tariff; you've also got the handset price. That it's you're the same only well. culture that we, that we now have mm-hmm. that people have discovered only in the last maybe couple of years. I'm still in the crowd of I, I still like a new phone. I get I think I get bored easily, and I, I think personally I use my phone a lot. So having something new to play with is is still you're just such a me, poser, Craig. I'm That's just, the problem. <laughs> I'm just I, I, I'm not yet in I'm not yet in that growing crowd of people who have realised that you just don't need to upgrade. And I think I'm probably I'm edging that way uh, because, like I say, the from the XDXS was so so marginal it really was completely pointless at the time upgrading those phones Apple has a really big job on the hand convincing people that the next handset's going to be a significant upgrade otherwise people just won't upgrade again they'll continue to use their phones maybe replace batteries things like that in order to keep them ticking along because 
people want to see a big difference. And once upon a time, you saw a big difference when you upgraded your phone, whether it was the quality of the camera, whether it was the look, the style of the phone, whether it was the battery life. There was always big differences in the quality of what you were upgrading. And if that starts to disappear, then Apple really does need to focus on other aspects of the business. Otherwise, it's going to see its share price get hit quite hard. Craig, have a very good weekend and we'll speak to you again next time. Thank you very much. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.